we are looking at church history. We did this a number of years ago, late 90s, and um, there have been a lot of requests to do it again, especially because, well, the recording was even worse back then. We did it on something called Real Audio, uh, if any of you are old enough to remember that. And uh, so uh, we're going a little bit more slowly, too, I've discovered, than we, we did back then. And we're at probably uh, one of the more difficult lessons, to be honest with you, because we've been looking at the background of church history. Very often, one of the reasons that there are misunderstandings concerning the nature of church history, what happened uh, in the history of the church, is because we don't have the appropriate understanding of the context in which these events took place, and especially the beginning context of uh, where the church, how the church was birthed, and what the world was like, and and issues related to that. And obviously, so much of church history is an issue of why did Christians do what they did within the context they lived? And obviously, that's something that we deal with in our day as well, to be able to understand, have a better perspective as to how we are to engage the world. It's always useful to be able to look back and see uh, how Christians dealt with issues in the past. Uh, but to be able to do that, we have to know something about the world in which they lived. And that gospel went out into a world that was not a vacuum. Uh, initially, the last time we were together, however many weeks ago that was, um, uh, initially you have the, the issue of Judaism. We looked at uh, Taniatic or Second, Second Temple Judaism. Uh, we looked a little bit at the, uh, the Mishnah, uh, the Gemara, the Talmud, uh, which of course come after the time of Christ. But give us some insight into some of the traditions and beliefs of Second Temple Judaism and the Jews of the days of Jesus, which they were not a monolithic group. You, we see that in the New Testament itself with the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Zealots, and then uh, history tells us about the Essenes and, and things like that. But the world outside of Israel, ancient Israel, was, of course, dominated by Greek culture by this time because of Alexander the Great and the tremendous expansion of his empire that had taken place prior to the time of Christ. Um, it's helpful, it's useful to even review briefly uh, the, the political developments that had taken place uh, we mentioned, I think, briefly, that's one of the problems in doing this only every few weeks is uh, sort of hard to remember exactly who I was speaking to last on certain issues, but um, it is very important to recognize that one of the reasons that the New Testament, um, we, talked, we talked last time about all the theories out there about people saying the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic or Hebrew or things like that, but the reality is the, the lingua franca of the day was what is called Koine Greek, common Greek. Now, there obviously have been changes and developments in Greek over the many centuries, just as there was in that day as well. And so, for example, when you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint, um, there are grammatical features in that which was translated 200 to 250 years before Christ, there are differences between that and the Greek of the New Testament, which is being written 50 to 100 years after Christ. And so in only 300 some odd years, 300 to 350 years, you can see 
uh, development in the language even in that time period. And so the importance of Alexander's uh, expansion of the empire uh, and then the Romans coming along and, and basically uh, appropriating Greek culture, um, borrowing Greek gods. Uh, the Romans were certainly good at a lot of things, but they, they weren't the most imaginative folks uh, when it comes to those things. They sort of were somewhat eclectic, borrowed from other people and things like that. But it's, it's vital to understand that as the gospel leaves uh, a primarily Jewish context, what's it going to run into? Well, sort of depends on which direction you're looking. I mean, obviously, as the gospel goes east, it's going to be encountering somewhat of a different religious milieu than when it goes west. And keep that in mind, because uh, one of the dates I, I mentioned to the class, there are certain dates that you have to Make sure you, uh, you memorize so that uh, you don't uh, fail the final examination. And there might be a final examination. You never know. I mean, it's uh, stranger things have happened. Um, thank you. I was about to say, you already have one date, and Gary's got it down. Uh, he's been muttering it in his sleep. Uh, that's what I've been told anyways by certain people who would know. And... Uh, uh, the first, first date, which we haven't even gotten to yet, but uh, is always on the final, is the date of the Council of Nicaea, which, as we have already heard, uh, is 325 A.D. But another date that's always on that list uh, is 1054 A.D. That's a long ways down the road, yes, but it's the, the formal point of the split between the East and the West, between what we would call... Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy uh, and uh, the Western, uh, by that time, it wasn't full-blown Roman Catholicism, but was certainly moving that way very quickly with the papacy, so on and so forth. And I'll try to remember to do this. I can't promise to do as well as I would like, but uh, it is important, I think, to, to make note of some of the foundational reasons why that split took place and continues to exist to this day. And one of those reasons, well, there was a language reason, uh, big time. Um, but another one of those reasons is because the, the religious world into which the gospel went to the east was different than the religious world into which the gospel went in the west. And so when you're fighting battles against a certain kind, a certain range of worldviews on this frontier and a different range and kind of worldviews on the other frontier, well, that can tend to end up developing different flavors of emphasis and understanding and experience and so on and so forth. And that will end up having an impact upon the development of the issues that eventually leads to that great what's called the Great Schism, in, uh, in 1054. And, that, and as with everything else in church history, uh, I've already warned you once, I'll warn you again, probably warn you 20 times before we're done, when you see books, when you see pamphlets that have this list of dates on them and it says, Doctrine of Purgatory Invented, and then there's a date to it, uh, you automatically know that whoever put that together doesn't really understand how history works. Because nobody woke up one morning and went, 
voila, purgatory, you know, uh, or purgatory, whatever else you want to call it. Um, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's not um, a matter of uh, a sudden development, but, but a doctrine such as purgatory, as we'll see not too far down the road, uh, developed from numerous different strands of beliefs that, that developed, and sometimes you get two, they have to come together and become joined, become a, a strand that joins with something over here before you eventually get this belief that comes together, and, and, and so those kinds of simplistic ways of looking at history really aren't helpful to us, and in fact normally are, are rather uh, deceptive and, and destructive to having a, a solid understanding. Um, so as I said, last time we looked at uh, the Jewish background, but we likewise need to especially understand um, the Greek religious uh, milieu into which the gospel went. Why? Why should we? Why should we care? Well, you know, you might, you might, it might help you understand Acts chapter 17 a little bit better because Paul goes to the Areopagus and. They've got all these idols, and, and they're so concerned about making sure that all their bases are covered and no one's offended, hmm, we don't ever hear that anymore, um, that uh, there is an altar to the unknown God. Uh, and so just in case there's a God out there we forgot to build an altar to here, uh, we're, we're just obviously really trying not to offend anybody when it comes to the deities. Um, it could help us understand some of that, but I think for a lot of people, it's just like, eh, more important things for me to do with my time. But when objections are made to the Christian faith, very often those objections come in the form of, well, you all talk about things the Bible doesn't talk about. And when we get to, for example, the Council of Nicaea, which took place in... Thank you very much. Um, in 325, uh, we are going to discover that the council chose to, to do something that a lot of people would object to even to this day unless they think through things rather clearly or try to think through things clearly. And that is the only way they could find to unmask the Arians, the people who were denying the deity of Christ, was to utilize a, a word that did not find its origin in Scripture itself. And the reason that they had to do so is that once you leave the initial context of the New Testament, now people start asking questions that were not directly addressed in the context of the writing of the New Testament itself. And so now you have to take the general principles and beliefs that have been revealed in Scripture and make application in all sorts of different contexts. And that's where the difficulties arise. Um, and surely one of the most common objections, that, for example, uh, Mormon apologists over the years, I've, I've done a number of debates on the Trinity, for example, up in Salt Lake City and on the radio stations up there and things like that. And one of the things we hear all the time is, well, look, you know, uh, Christianity went off the rails, you know, shortly after the last apostles uh, passed away, and 
the priesthood authority was lost and uh, went into apostasy and uh, uh, started to, to borrow Greek philosophy to explain everything. Well, um, there's no question that someone like a Justin Martyr, who we'll look at in a matter of weeks, that a Justin Martyr most definitely utilized a lot of philosophical language and philosophical categories to express his understanding of the gospel. Um, so might there have been some people who were much more at home in Greek philosophy than in the scriptures and therefore um, interpreted things in a context the apostles would never have been able to understand? Most definitely. Um, but is it also possible that one of the reasons that many people engaged these topics and even end up having to use the, you know, certain terminology was because questions were being asked of the Christian faith that had not been asked during the days of the apostles? And you have a choice. You can either just sit there and go, well, I really can't answer that question because um, you're using words that were not found in the Bible anywhere, and therefore I can't answer your question. I don't think that's a proper understanding of how the church is supposed to function because the church was sent out into all the world. We're make disciples of all nations. Well, that means we need to have to communicate to all nations. And all those nations may well uh, ask questions of us that we need to be able to provide an answer to. And finding that balance between answering accurately and then compromising the message so as to try to... Uh, impress people with a particular worldview background, that's where much of the controversy is, uh, is to be found, uh, in, uh, even in our day and age. And so one of the reasons to have some understanding of the Greek religions is because of the fact that so much of the first few centuries, um, you know, Justin Martyr is a converted Greek philosopher. Uh, and he's going to influence people. And uh, we'll discover that some of the early uh, individuals that, that we'll be reading about, uh, they were called the apologists. All right, well, what were they giving an apologetic to? Primarily to criticisms against the church that came from a, a Greek philosophical background. And uh, some of the early enemies of the Christian faith, Celsus, for example, is going to... Uh, couch much of his criticism of the of the Christianity within that context, and so that's why we need to look at some of these particular uh, things. Now, uh, the Greek religion religions there wasn't just one, but there you 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 would even have differences between city states. You're probably familiar with the fact that there were city states. Um, if you weren't from if you weren't familiar with that. From studying in high school, you may become familiar with that by seeing clips from 300 or something like that. You know, maybe the movies helped you uh, figure out that uh, you have Athens and Sparta, and, and these are city-states that have maybe sometimes a loose alliance or confederation, but very frequently you have a king over a particular area. Well, when that exists for any length of time, very frequently what you end up getting is a development of variations on a major religious theme where you sort of alter some of the stories to make your city-state look a little bit better than the other city-states. And this can end up, especially when you're, you're 
your gods are pretty much, everybody knows, are mythological anyways. Um, making a few changes in the overall story isn't considered all that big of a deal. When you look at mythology, it's not like, it's not like they're saying, well, in such and such a year, when such and such a person was reigning, this took place. No, it's in the ancient days, this sort of happened. And it's just left sort of nebulous because you're not really grounding it in, in history itself. So you know that there was a rather complicated pantheon of gods who were quite human in their form, in their desires, in their behaviors. Uh, these, these gods were, were basically exalted men in the sense that um, they had limitations. Uh, like most of the gods of the ancient world, there, there was a certain area over which they had particular authority. Remember the Canaanite gods. You'd have fertility gods and gods of the weather and gods of war and gods of commerce and all the rest of these kinds of, of things. And you'd sort of divide deities up amongst the various aspects of uh, human life. Uh, but especially in the Greek religion, these gods behaved very much like fallen, sinful human beings. They made mistakes. They warred amongst each other. Uh, uh, they could be cast out. Uh, they, they, there's just all sorts of stories that uh, fill the various volumes of, uh, of Greek and then Roman mythology. The Roman mythology almost always just following on, on the Greek. Um, the gods of the Greeks were not always able to accomplish their will. Uh, they were in themselves, in the final analysis, subject to fate. Uh, they were not eternal in the Christian sense of the term. They were immortal. Uh, but the idea that, uh, and, and this is difficult for us to understand, but, but we have a very Western way of looking at time. Uh, almost everyone in here has been raised with a very Western idea of time as a uh, linear thing with a past, present, and future. And uh, you need to understand that probably the majority of the human family down through the ages um, has had, for example, a cyclical view of time, uh, that it runs in a, in a cycle, and that it's not from here to there, and it's never going to go back to there, well, unless something terrible happens, like a nuclear war or something, but uh, that still wouldn't be cyclical. That would just be a huge bump in the road on this progression uh, always toward the future, and and things like that. Many people had a, a very different understanding of time. Uh, many people, for example, in the medieval period, as, as we will see, uh, because they, they were born, raised, and lived, and never traveled more than seven miles one direction or another, the world was a very small world to them. They, they didn't see how the world had changed, and so they didn't think the world did change. And so it was just the same thing, repeating over and over again. And especially in the eastern uh, areas, the eastern uh, part of the world, that would be a very common understanding of time. Uh, the idea of it having a beginning and an end and a purpose all the way along is really something that uh, Christianity um, uh, was very important in providing to the world, the idea of a God who's the creator of all these things. Well, these immortal gods... Uh, of, of the Greeks uh, were not eternal in the sense of, of being in of themselves sufficient as the ground of all being. 
not even Zeus or Jupiter, uh, you know, not even the, the, the chief of the pantheon of gods would be great enough and, and powerful enough to be the creator of all things. They all had their origin and source in something else. And so there were a lot of questions left unanswered, uh, cosmologically speaking, as to the nature of creation, where things came from, and things like that. About uh, 500 years before Christ, uh, a Greek philosopher by the name of Protagoras wrote in a book called Truth a phrase that you all have probably heard. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. And though we like to think that ancient man, uh, that all ancient men had these very, very limited understandings, uh, the reality is we know that ancient Greeks, Chinese, and others uh, knew long, long ago about the movements of the planets and, and, and things like that. Uh, there were some bright minds uh, in, in the history of the, of the human race. But still, there was, without light from God, um, in the sense of divine revelation rather than just general revelation, um, it was, it was difficult to see how there could be any higher standard than man in his own mind. And so paganism really functioned in that way. You might talk about deities and things like that, but even these deities that they created functioned very much on a human level and were judged very much in the same way. And that's why I've said in some ways our culture is returning to paganism, returning to that day uh, where you have competing deities. You know, if, if, you're, if you're allowed to define your own reality over against what is the reality of your physical makeup simply by the exercise of your will between, you know, what's going on in your head, um, then you become your own deity. You become your own creator of reality. And, and no one can dare say, well, you're wrong about that because there is no right and wrong. It's all a matter of, of uh, a subjectivity based upon man being the measure of all things. And so uh, these were some of the, the concepts that were going on. Another one of the uh, concepts that's very important to understand is the concept of dualism. Dualism. Now, dualism is the idea that if we were to simplify it completely, and all simplifications are dangerous, but you can start there recognizing there may be some exceptions along the way. But fundamentally, dualism is the idea that the spiritual realm is good and the physical realm is evil. The out outworking of that in most of the religions of the day was a the idea that salvation involved the freeing of the good spirit from being trapped inside the physical body. And so the idea is you, have, you are a spark of the divine. Um, you are a, a wandering, lost snippet of deity, 
Your spiritual nature is a, is a little flame from the great flame. Yeah, I know, I sound like I just got back from Sedona or something. Um, and if you don't know what Sedona is, we have a, it's a beautiful little city uh, north of us here. The Red Rock country, it's gorgeous. Unfortunately, it's been completely taken over, invaded and taken over, occupied uh, by loons. Um, it was the, remember the harmonic convergence, what was that, 96, 1996, something like that, I forget what it was, the harmonic convergence, you would remember, you were really into that stuff, right? I have no idea. What okay, okay, all right, sure, right. Um, yeah, sure, you just, you just don't remember it anymore. Um, and, um, shot out, but anyways, um, had to get that in there somewhere, and it's recorded too, so that's good. Anyway, um, the harmonic convergence, where uh, all of the universe was, the, the harmonies were going to converge in Sedona. And all it was was just everybody that had an old VW uh, bus converged in Sedona. And uh, same thing. And, uh, uh, and you know, they, unfortunately, they just liked it so much, they didn't leave. Uh, so it's just really, whenever I ride through there on my bike, which I don't do very often, uh, but the few times I have, it's just sort of like, let's go even faster. Because I want to I get out of here before these folks uh, do strange things. But anyway, um, this, the idea is that that you are one of these little sparks of the divine, and your, your ultimate goal is every little flame wants to get back to the big flame and be ab absorbed into the big flame, you know. And the idea of you being a creature made by a personal, transcendent God, uh, that, that you have uh, worth and value in God's sight, and that your body was created by God for the purpose of glorifying God. So, so, no, that's totally foreign to these types of religious ideas. And so you can, you can see this in the New Testament, how pervasive dualism was in Greek culture. It comes out very clearly in Acts chapter 17, because what is it that causes uh, Paul's sermon to come to an abrupt halt well, I guess you wouldn't call it a sermon, but whatever it was he was doing in the Areopagus. When you look at Acts chapter 17, he's going along and, and he's, he's you know, using what's around him uh, to get people to listen to what he's saying, and, but he's starting to you know, fill in the, the proper truth and understanding. But then eventually he says one word, and the wheels fall off. And they start mocking him. And uh, they say, ah, well, we'll listen to you again sometime. Their, their interest in his new views uh, exploded. You know, just put the pin in the balloon and it was gone because he said one word. And that word was anastasis, resurrection. And they knew that that meant that which died coming to life again. They didn't have any of these woo-woo ideas of what resurrection is and that liberalism has come up with and stuff like that. Uh, I'm reminded this was one of the points that I brought up in my presentation in 2005, I think it was. Yeah, I think it was 2005 uh, when we had a debate on an Alaskan cruise. Uh, myself and Jim Renahan uh, debated 
Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan on the resurrection. And we were over halfway through the debate when I forget whether it was Crossan or Borg. You have to look at it again sometime. Was it Borg? See, see the people who watched the debates more than once. Um, and uh, we were able to see the debate because we kept that particular individual away from the light switch. But anyway, um, uh, <laughs> you're the one that sat down front, dude. It's not, it's not, it's not my fault. Anyway, uh, at one point, one of the, one of the gentlemen uh, said to be Marcus Borg, it's like, so you guys, you guys actually believe that Jesus' tomb was empty because because the body was gone. We're like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's really what Christians believe, you know? And, and it, you know, we had both given, I don't know, 15-minute presentations at that point, but it took that long to just sort of get it, get it through that, yes, resurrection, that which died coming to life again. And the dualists there in Acts chapter 17 they start mocking, because that's, no, 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 you, you, you don't understand. The wonderful thing about death is the physical body, this, it's a trap. It's part of, the, of, the, of this evil creation. I notice I didn't say fallen creation. There's a, there's a difference. We, we, again, even when we hear these things, interpret them within our context, leading to misunderstanding. Uh, this creation is evil in of itself. It's not that it was made good and then became evil. No, it's just that's just its nature. So it's a good thing to die because your spirit, that spark, is released from the trap that it's been in. But the Christians come along and say, guess what? Uh, not only is the body not evil, and hence that removes all sorts of excuses for sin and rebellion and things like that. Because obviously, if you're a dualist, it was really easy to come up with the idea that, well, hey, if this body's just a trap anyways, I can use it any way I want to. Uh, and so, you know, hedonism. You know, my spirit remains good. It's just by that evil body that's going out and doing all the terrible, horrible, nasty stuff. Uh, and, of course, there are others who also were dualists that went the other direction and became ascetic in their thinking. Well, since the body is an evil thing, then I need to treat it in that way and uh, not pollute the, the good spirit. So being a dualist didn't necessarily mean you ended up being a hedonist or something. or, or the, it, it ended up expressing itself in different ways. But there was a strong aversion uh, and rejection of this idea of resurrection, that which died coming to life again uh, within dualist thinking. Now that is also very important to understand a religious concept that came out of the East, the East, it sounded like I said yeast, 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 whatever, um, and became one of the greatest enemies of the Christian faith. And we see the initial encounters between the Christian faith and this movement in the New Testament. But then there's developments over time, and pretty much everybody who was anybody in the early church who wrote a book eventually wrote against this movement, uh, and it's called Gnosticism, Gnosticism. Now, that's G-N, uh, the word starts with 
G-N-O-S, Gnosticism. Gnosticism, if you want to try to look really cool while insulting somebody while taking church history, you say, you sound like a Gnostic. Because <laughs> most people are like, I don't think he meant that as a compliment. I'm not sure, because what's a Gnostic? I don't know. Um, lots of things end up being called Gnosticism that really the Gnostics themselves would have gone, eh, uh, why, why did you say that? But um, Gnosticism develops over time. There is no one systematic theology of Gnosticism. So all you can do is say, some Gnostics believe this, some Gnostics believe that, and there's some general concepts that sort of hold things together. They were dualists. There's no question about that. But if you're a dualist, you have a question that is very troubling. If you have an all-good God, and again, we think of God in a very concrete, personal category, but the Gnostics tended to think of God more in an Eastern, vague, pantheistic uh, force idea, okay? You know, uh, you've, you've got the, 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 you know, not the dark side, but the, the good side of the force type stuff. And if he's all spirit and hence all good, and our ultimate goal is to be absorbed back into it, then the question comes about where did the creation come from? Because it didn't have the idea, like I said, of, the, of a creation, of a good creation that then falls. By definition, that which is physical is evil. And so where did creation come from? And theodicy, um, which comes from theos and dikaiao, uh, it, it means to justify God in light of the existence of evil. Theodicy has, is a part of every religion, whether you have an in-depth theodicy or an extremely shallow theodicy, it doesn't matter, every religion has some kind of theodicy. Um, the answer they gave, in essence, was that you have your, your, good, your good God up here. Okay, well, we'll just go ahead and follow God. It's more of a fuzzy cloud type thing. But um, no name, for example, just God. And so emanating out of God come these beings which looks a little bit like a bad spine, um, but um, made of kidney beans. Um, but uh, you, you have emanations from God. And these are, are divine beings, and they're, they're good beings, but they're not quite as high as God. And each one of them is known as an eon. Now, eon is the time... The, word that is translated in the New Testament as, as age, sometimes world, but, but age, uh, sometimes in the plural, ages, and all these eons taken together are called the pleroma, which is the Greek term for fullness, and it's interesting that the book of Colossians, Colossae is to the east of, of Ephesus, 
And it seems that some of the early Gnostic ideas were coming from the East and were... Gnosticism was always, you know, the terminology I've used only works for young people or older people today. But if you remember as a kid, if you had either Plato or Silly Putty. Silly Putty you could, you could use to, if you pushed it on the comic paper, remember how it would, it would lift the ink off the comic paper and you could do fun stuff with the faces and all. And, uh, and this was before video games, for those of you who are younger folks who don't know what in the world I'm talking about. Um, but the problem with, and, and Play-Doh, you could you make little horses and stuff like that. Um, but the problem is, if you ever dropped it, either one of them, in the dirt, what would they do? they just glom onto that dirt, and you could never get back up. It, it would never be smooth and really usable uh, again. It would just be, it'd, like, it'd become like crunchy peanut butter, which I detest crunchy peanut butter. <laughs> inappropriate. Um, if you're going to eat a peanut, eat a peanut. But if you're going to make it butter, it needs to be like butter. I, I just, uh, that's, it's, no. Yeah, anyway. Um, so, uh, Gnosticism was like Play-Doh. It would roll along, and when it would encounter another religion, it would just sort of take elements from it and just try to work it into its own system. And that's seemingly what was, what was happening in, in Colossae, because it's like early Gnosticism ran into Judaism and said, oh, let's see what we can bring along here. And when it ran into Christianity, it tried to do the same thing with Jesus, just sort of suck Jesus into the mold and find a place for him someplace. Because it's not like they have a systematic theology. Um, it, it's more like the Borg, you know. Your, your distinctiveness will be added to ours, and you're sucked in. Um, so, the terminology, how many times does Paul in Colossians use the term play Roma? All hati enato katoikai ta play Roma te somatikos. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Uh, he uses their terminology against them in, in Colossians. And so it seems they ran to Judaism, and now they're trying to sort of make room for a Jesus someplace. And it, it seems they put Jesus up here as one of the eons. He's not truly God, but he's an emanation from God. And you can see Paul just smacking him upside the head with the things that he says that there is no way they could ever accept. Well, the point is, eventually, you get down here to, to a being that still has great power, but it's far enough removed from the one true God that you get what's called a demiurge. And the demiurge it has, is far enough away from the one true God that evil is found in it. And it then can create the physical world. Still got power to create the physical world, but it's, it's removed from the one true God. It's the one true God, the, the totally spiritual God, can't be blamed for what the Demiurge does. Now, if you think about it, then what's the logical result once Gnosticism tries, once you get a quote-unquote Christian Gnosticism? Well, the creator God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, becomes the Demiurge. And the Father, Jesus, is the good God up the top, and then Jesus is one of the Pleroma, and then you've got Jehovah, who's a different God. And so there were, quote-unquote, Christian Gnostics. And unfortunately, when you go to university, read most of the textbooks, these people all be called Christians. 
despite the fact it's a completely different worldview, and there was nobody in the New Testament that had any worldview, anything like this, it's completely contradictory to it, ah, eh, whatever, as long as, they, as long as you said Jesus, uh, you get to be called a Christian. Uh, they generally don't do that with Muslims for some reason, but anyway. Um, so you had, quote-unquote, Christian Gnostics, who, for example, rejected the entirety of the New Testament because it's the, it's the scripture of the evil Demiurge. And then they purged the New Testament of anything that would speak in an appropriate or high fashion of the Old Testament, the Old Testament God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, blah, 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 blah. Um, and one of the big names in, in that, as we will see later on, this is the guy that everybody wrote a book against for like 300 years, uh, Martial. So he becomes the big baddie. And um, uh, so this is there for where creation comes from, is from the Demiurge down here at the, at the bottom. And so this particular religious concept, uh, you know, there, there's no way, you know, no one did polls. Uh, you didn't have online Facebook uh, polls and stuff like that to go by back then. Um, and one of the big areas of argumentation is, well, how big did any of these groups ever get? A German scholar by the name of Bauer uh, created a hypothesis that basically the early church was nothing but a complete mishmash of every kind of different belief in the world, and then slowly the proto-Orthodox won battle after battle after battle and wiped out the other folks, and eventually you have Orthodox Christianity coming out at the end as the victor. Um, that particular theory has been torn apart, but all sorts of modern theories have been torn apart, but continue to live like, like zombies, um, like the, the walking dead theories. Uh, you know, you can shoot them in the head and they keep going. It's a, it's a bad thing. And they end up having tremendous impact because almost all, anybody who goes to university is going to be taught, well, it was just all this, you know, we know there are all these different views. Well, yeah, there, there were, but how big were they? How many people actually bought into these things? And did it really, was it almost always a localized thing here, a localized thing there? Uh, how does all that work? And that's going to be one of the big uh, arguments that we're going to have to deal with in the early church is how do you, if you don't, you know, we have 2,000 years of history to look back on. They didn't. So how do you deal uh, with someone who comes along and says, well, I was taught this by Peter. How do you, how do you test a, uh, a statement like that? And some of the answers the early church came up with were good. Some of the answers they came up with were really bad. And the really bad answers ended up leading to really bad results way down the road in a way that the people who came up with those really bad answers could never have foreseen, could never have foreseen. It's really easy for people today to you know, throw the javelin of hindsight at some poor guy in the late second century uh, and say, you messed everything up. Well, all right, from our perspective, uh, what that guy said ended up influencing this guy and that guy, and it ended up with some really bad results. But that guy didn't know that at the time. Uh, he was doing the best he could, and it's real easy for people to look back and just you know, rip and shred folks. Um, 
rather than considering what the context of those things were. So there's Gnosticism, and uh, so the next time, I think next week, is going to be the tough week. I'll just warn you ahead of time, uh, because we need to look at the Greek philosophies of the day, such as Stoicism and Epicureanism and Platonism and uh, all that neat, fun stuff. And we'll try to get it all done in one shot, because it's sort of like when mom made you take that certain kind of really icky medicine that you just really detested, just get it down real quick and you'll feel better afterwards, mainly because we're done with it, and, uh, but it is important to cover. Okay? All right, we're out of time. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity and freedom that we have to gather together and consider these things. Help us, Lord, even as we study falsehood, to recognize uh, why it's false, to recognize even its modern uh, incarnations, and uh, that we might be better servants of yours, we might be able to better communicate your truth to others. We thank you for this time. ask that you be with us now as we go into worship. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.